Welcome to Season 2 of Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. We return today after a summer hiatus, uh, after our first inaugural year last year. Uh, this year, we hope to produce more podcasts, hopefully one every uh, two weeks, or perhaps oftener if uh, events uh, require. A lot is happening in the political world, and we plan to explore a variety of interesting topics over the coming year. For today's episode, to start us off, uh, I thought we would uh, focus on the role of the Supreme Court in American politics. Uh, with a review of the important decisions from the last Supreme Court term and a preview of what we can expect uh, this coming year. Uh, to guide us through these judicial thickets, I am pleased to welcome Providence College Professor Paul Heron, our department's Supreme Court and constitutional law specialist. Paul is especially well qualified to help us understand the court's decision. After earning his BA at American University in 2003, Paul pursued a law degree at Northeastern University, earning his JD in 2007. After practicing law with a law firm in Boston, Paul opted to return to study political science in graduate school at Brandeis University, where he earned his PhD in political science in 2014. At Brandeis, Paul specialized in the study of American state constitutions and Southern politics. His first book tells the fascinating story of how Southern politicians used constitutional conventions after the Civil War to construct a distinctive brand of politics built on Jim Crow subjugation of African Americans. The book, Framing the Solid South, The State Constitutional Conventions of Secession, Reconstruction, and Redemption, 1860 to 1902, was published by the University of Kansas Press in 2017. Professor Heron joined the PC Political Science faculty in 2016 and teaches courses on constitutional law, civil liberties, law and society, and an especially popular course on the Supreme Court. He also serves as PC's pre-law advisor. Paul, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you, Bill. So to start off our conversation, Paul, let's, let's begin at the beginning and uh, give a little press see about uh, the role of the Supreme Court in American politics and something about the meaning of judicial review, because that's certainly going to be relevant to what we're talking about today. Okay, so I always like to start with my students with the, with the actual Constitution. And uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court, the Constitution is actually relatively silent. Much of the debate in Philadelphia surrounded representation, as I'm sure you know. So by the time they got to the point that they needed to construct a Supreme Court, not a lot went into it. Article 3 is uh, just three sections long and only four paragraphs. It establishes a Supreme Court and inferior courts, but basically delegates the duty to Congress to determine um, how many courts and, and what the court system will look like. It establishes jurisdiction, but nothing is said about judicial review. But judicial review came about uh, by a, a good political maneuver by the first chief justice, right? Exactly. So the fact that judicial review is not outlined in the Constitution allows for the Supreme Court itself to kind of establish its own uh, power over interpretation. 
And that's what happens with John Marshall in the famous Marbury versus Madison case. The Judiciary Act of 1789 established the system of federal courts and defined their jurisdiction, but it didn't establish the judicial review. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful old book by Robert McCluskey that argues there were kind of three main periods of American constitutional development in the, uh, in the history of the court. The first was from 1789 to the close of the Civil War, and that period was mainly concerned with the nation-state uh, distribution of power. It was also concerned with building up the power of the court itself. One thing to remember is that the court is part of the federal government. So despite the fact that conservatives sit on the Supreme Court and some conservatives are suspicious of federal power, they are part of the federal government. So there's always a kind of self-interest in preserving the power of the court itself. The second period uh, after the Civil War to the New Deal was concerned primarily with business government relation during the Industrial Revolution. And the third period, the period I think we're still in, uh, is the era of individual rights. And we, we see this. It originally was more of a liberal project, but now conservatives use uh, jurisprudence of individual rights to advance their political causes as well. So, so this power of judicial, judicial review that uh, was established in, in Marbury versus Madison way back in 1803 is essentially a power that says, the Supreme Court can declare constitutional or unconstitutional acts of the legislature or acts of uh, any federal official, right? That's what yes. it's basically about. So, uh, but early on, the court didn't uh, exercise judicial review that often. Isn't that correct? It's true. For one thing, the government was simply not as big, so there wasn't as much to review. Um, and the court moved slowly in in striking down laws because the court had to um, establish its own legitimacy and it had to make sure that if it did strike down a law, the executive branch or the legislative branch would actually follow what they decided. Yeah, because uh, I mean nowadays we sort of assume that uh, when the, the Supreme Court strikes down a law, uh, that's going to be accepted. Uh, that's considered legitimate, but certainly early on it might not have been considered so legitimate, right? It was Of course. And uh, and if we think uh, if we think back on it, even even the way they decided cases has changed over time. Initial decisions early on, um, a lot of decisions reference so called natural law, right? They would kind of supplement the Constitution with natural law. We all think now that the of the Constitution is kind of the foundational you know, end of the analysis, that's what you look to. And, but that even the Constitution was not so uh, set in place early on that the, uh, that the court could simply point to the Constitution and say, this is the rule, uh, this is what you must do. Yeah, but it's certainly true today that we've come to expect a very expansive power on the part of the court, that there's an assumption that if the court receives a case and it decides that something uh, that uh, the Congress has enacted or a president has done is unconstitutional and says so, we assume that, that that's what the Constitution is, right? Yes. And so that's not just judicial review, but judicial sovereignty, where we've kind of given over that power completely to the court. There are a lot of people who argue that the president has a role in interpreting the Constitution or that the Congress has a role in interpreting the Constitution. But I think uh, what you said is true. Generally, we have um, deferred to the court 
to uh, to tell us what the law means. Well, that's very interesting. I I happen to be uh, part of a, a reading group this semester where we're reading the the writings of Abraham Lincoln, and I, I just came from one of our meetings where we read a an essay uh, that uh, Lincoln wrote when he was a congressman, and it's about uh, the veto power. Uh, and one of the points that he makes in there is that well, part of what what the president is supposed to do with the veto is to judge the constitutionality of legislative enactments, and that's what the veto is for. And I think as, as, as I read that, I thought, that sounds a little quaint. We don't assume that presidents are going to do that kind of thing. Now ago, nowadays, we've sort of turned that power over to the court. Yes, and in a lot of ways, the early thinking among presidents was that was the, that was the role of the veto, is to think about constitutionality. But now we think the veto is purely a, a policy tool, right? So if a Republican president is, uh, is reviewing legislation passed by a Democratic Congress, uh, the veto might come into play whether or not it's, the law is constitutional. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't even associate constitutionality with, with the veto these days, exactly. which is a big change. So let's bring things up to the contemporary era. So uh, for the last couple of decades, there seems to have been a, uh, a balance in the court between so-called liberals and so-called conservatives. For a long time, uh, we've had a court that was uh, with four uh, relatively liberal judges and four relatively conservatives and a, a swing judge in the middle, usually, that would kind of determine a lot of judicial outcomes. Uh, this was the case you know, uh, prior, uh, even up through Obama's term, where uh, you had these uh, four liberals, four conservatives, and Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy in the middle, who was kind of the, exactly. the swing justice. Uh, if I remember correctly, Bush uh, got an opportunity to appoint two justices during his presidency, but both times he appointed uh, conservatives to replace conservatives. Yes. So uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts replaced Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was a conservative, and then uh, Justice Alioto replaced, who did he replace? I forget. Alito replaced O'Connor. No, not O'Connor. O'Connor. Yeah, it would have been yeah. O'Connor. Yeah. yeah, Judge O'Connor. So, uh, and then Obama. So, uh, so a shift, um, a slight shift to the right. Right, but, but still this but sort still, of liberal conservative. Exactly, and then yeah. when... Obama got a chance to appoint uh, Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, also replacing a couple liberals. So that maintained the balance. Yes. And then Antonin Scalia upped and died, right? Yes. Suddenly died uh, Scalia, a conservative, while Obama was president. And this opened up the possibility that Obama could appoint a fifth liberal yes. uh, to the court. So, so that caused a real sort of uh, political uh, uh, confrontation. You want to talk a little bit about what happened then? Well, what happens next is um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader and Republican, decides that we should wait for the results of the presidential election to determine uh, who, will, who will serve on the Supreme Court. So he will not hold hearings for uh, President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, uh, who was eminently qualified, right, um, and actually a fairly centrist pick for Obama for several reasons. He's, he's not um, especially liberal, and he's also um, older than 
a lot of justices that they would people would like to appoint and keep on the court for many many years. It seems Obama was calculating that maybe the Republicans actually would confirm this guy if they appointed a more centrist uh, person rather than somebody who was obviously very liberal. Yes, and he uh, was wrong. He was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so Garland Garland never got a hearing. He he wasn't confirmed. And then uh, everybody was surprised in 2016 when President Trump actually won the election. Right. Uh, and then he quickly moved to appoint Neil Gorsuch. Right. Right. And so the so then so then the pattern you've described continues as a result, right? Because Gorsuch replaces Scalia, and Gorsuch is another conservative replacing a conservative. So we've we've maintained the balance for the moment, right? right. And the key was. Anthony Kennedy, who was a swing justice. You want to say something about Anthony Kennedy's record and how he was a swing justice on the court? And Anthony Kennedy is um, is interesting because he he will he would often sign with conservatives on on a variety of issues, but he had liberal inclinations, especially around things like the death penalty and uh, gay marriage and other issues that that are more kind of moral conservative issues that he did not fall in line with. Interestingly enough, we're going to talk a little bit about the partisan gerrymandering cases. Kennedy kind of sat in the middle on that issue, too. He wasn't really ready to strike the whole practice, but he, he also uh, wasn't ready to just kind of let the politicians figure it out. And so when Kennedy resigned, that gave Trump an opportunity to appoint someone else, and he picks yes. this fellow Brett Kavanaugh. Yes who is uh, pretty much a movement conservative, right? Yes. Kavanaugh is a, a pretty standard conservative. I was thinking about the difference between his nomination and Gorsuch. Gorsuch really um, was quite a good replacement for Scalia uh, just in terms of his kind of judicial philosophy, his approach to cases and his approach to um, issues of uh, criminal procedure. He actually ends up being on the liberal side of some criminal procedure issues. Brett Kavanaugh, on the other hand, seems to be more of a kind of standard law and order conservative um, and someone who's worked in the conservative movement for years before he was on the, on the court. And um, ultimately, I think he will be uh, a, a solid pick for the Republicans. Yeah, so one could argue that the court's character has changed as a result of these new appointments that that uh, we have now a pretty solid five justices who we might consider conservative, all appointed by Republicans, and the four remaining liberals, all appointed by Democratic presidents. Yes. Right. And, and so there was, so as the term last year began with that new setup, uh, there was a lot of concern that maybe we'd have a series of decisions that were just very polarized and uh, with the conservatives sort of promoting a ideological agenda. Uh, I know we're going to talk about more specific cases, but just to introduce this, is that what what happened uh, this past year? Could we say this is the conservatives now in, in power uh, in the court? No, I don't. I, I, I don't think the last term was such that we can say that it's just a, now it's a conservative, it's the Roberts court, it's a, it's a conservative majority, and they are going to uh, come together on all uh, decisions and land on the conservative side of the issue. Um, the, there were a variety of splits that I think we're going to discuss, but um, it, it did not feel like uh, 
a kind of domination by conservatives last last term. Although there were not, there I mean there were several very important cases, but um, you know some of the the biggest hot button issues did not uh, come before the court, and they may yet come before the court in the future. And we'll we'll see if the conservatives come together and overturn precedent. Uh, that had, has been put in place by liberals. Yeah, so later on we can talk about that. It may, maybe this second this second term with this court might bring out more sharp partisan divisions than the first year. I suspect it will. Right. I, th- I think I think I think we're not going to really know um, what this court looks like um, until we've got a, 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 at least another year, maybe two more years uh, of decisions to kind of um, make an assessment. So, so let's get into some of these uh, decisions. Now, there were a couple of decisions this last year where there were clear partisan uh, shifts, where conservatives and liberals split sharply. Uh, one, the decision around the census, and then the partisan gerrymandering decisions. You want to say something about those decisions and what they involved and, and how, how the court uh, addressed them and what some of the arguments were? Sure. I'll start with the Rucho versus Common Cause case because that's, I think, probably the most important case from the last term, and that's the partisan gerrymandering case. It was joined with a a case called Lemoyne versus uh, Benesic out of Maryland. The Rucho case is out of North Carolina. And the issue before the court is, first of all, do these plaintiffs have standing to bring a case on partisan gerrymandering? That's the first question. The second question is whether the plaintiff's partisan gerrymandering claims are justiciable, which means whether the court can actually come up with a solution to the problem that is alleged. And then if it is justiciable, whether these maps, the one in North Carolina and the one in Maryland, um, are unconstitutional. The issue has come before the court several times before, even in the last term. and there's always been an indication the court would be willing to take up the issue of partisan gerrymandering, right? There's, there's never been a case that outlined that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional or, or set forth a test about how to determine whether something was unconstitutionally partisan gerrymandering. So last term, there's a case out of Wisconsin um, that, the, that the court sent back down for lack of standing. So it failed on the first question that the plaintiffs weren't properly before the court. The interesting thing, I think, as I pointed out earlier, is that Anthony Kennedy is someone who kind of sat in the middle on this issue. So the fact that it came up again so quickly um, provided a very quick test to see if this new court would move in a new direction. And that's why this case is probably the most important of the term and, and, and the most interesting to think about in terms of what the changes on the court mean. And it was interesting that they, they joined these two cases together, one out of North Carolina where a Republican legislature uh, supposedly uh, drew districts to bias the results in favor of Republican control of the state legislature in North Carolina. But in Maryland, it was the Democrats who did the same thing, biasing control in favor of the Democratic legislature. And I'll I'll just say I'll just correct you that it's you it's not even supposedly it's it's uh, blatant blatantly right in both cases and and in North Carolina they the the people who put together the uh, the map um, 
I'll read you a quote from, from one of the heads of the redistricting committee who said, we want to make clear that the extent we are going to use political data in drawing this map is to gain partisan advantage. This is said on the, on, on the House floor in North Carolina. They're proclaiming that this is what they're doing. Um, and just to give you a couple of numbers, um, in 2016, Republican candidates won 77% of the seats in North Carolina, but only received 53% of the vote. In 2018, in the U.S. House, Republicans got 10 of 13 seats, even though they got just 50% of the vote. It was extraordinarily effective. The availability of data, the use of um, computers and sophisticated software for line drawing has made partisan gerrymandering um, extraordinarily effective. I think uh, Elena Kagan points out in her dissent that 99.9% of other possible combinations of other possible maps resulted in less partisan outcomes. This is in North Carolina. It was engineered to give advantage to the Republican Party. So, so the facts were clear here. This yes. was not a question of whether or not partisan gerrymandering happened or not. No. Everybody agreed that it did happen. The question was, uh, was the court going to determine that this was constitutional? So what, what did the court decide on this issue? The court decided that the court did not have the power to decide. <laughs> the court said that this was a political question that it was something best left up to the political branches of government. Um, this is a, the idea, the political question doctrine is something that goes back a long ways. Uh, it got its start in actually here in Rhode Island in a, in a case called Luther versus Borden when the, uh, when the Rhode Island state government was in disarray and there were two competing factions claiming that they uh, controlled the government. The court said that you all need to figure it out we will not figure it out for you. This is a this is a political question. Gerrymandering generally had been a political question, and the way in which states apportion and draw districts until uh, the early 1960s, when uh, Baker versus Carr reversed that um, in in what some people say is one of the most consequential decisions at the Warren Court. Um, the court decided that they could indeed step in and require states to reapportion districts that were badly malapportioned, meaning that uh, some districts had many more people per representative than others. Um, but the partisan question had, had not uh, been solved until, until just this term. Okay, so the, the court decided that it couldn't decide. What, for what reasons? What kind of reasons? Uh, didn't uh, Chief Justice Roberts write the majority opinion? Roberts wrote the majority opinion. In, in this case, uh, he also wrote the majority opinion in the Commerce Department case that we're about to discuss, probably the two most important cases, and he, he wanted to kind of take control of them. Right. And in, in the second course, in the census case, he voted with the liberals. He right. partially, partially yes. Partially voted with the liberals. Okay, we, um, we'll get into that. In, on, the, uh, how, on the most important question, he voted with the liberals. Okay, so we're on gerrymandering. So what, what was his, his argument that uh, the court should stay out of this? His argument was there has been partisan gerrymandering for as long as 
there have been districts drawn in the United States. He said that there's not a standard that the court could put together that would allow it to figure out what made for partisan gerrymandering that that uh, broke a threshold of being unconstitutional versus what um, what was allowable under the Constitution. He said there were other avenues through which people could address this. Uh, there are state courts. As an aside, I'll just point out that it's kind of strange to say that the court could not figure out how to address this, but one other way that it could be addressed is by some other set of courts. Um, and, and Kagan makes this, uh, this point in her, yeah. in her dissent. And as we speak, we speak the day after the, was it the North, North Carolina. Carolina State yes. Court actually uh, did what Justice Roberts said courts were not capable of doing. They actually said that a, uh, a those are state legislative maps were Yep. Were, were, had to be redrawn, right? Yep. And set some standards for that, right? So anyway. And Kagan, Kagan's dissent almost acts as a, as a roadmap for that, for that decision. She points out that there are constitutional violations that courts could find in partisan gerrymandering in violation of equal protection, in violation of the First Amendment, freedom of expression. And she points out that there are protections contained within state constitutions for those same things. So uh, the North Carolina decision this week had to do with the state constitution, not with the federal constitution. And this is not something that is going to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. It will stand. But now that the Supreme Court has said that they cannot decide partisan gerrymandering in those states that don't have constitutions or state courts willing to take on the issue, uh, it's kind of open season for partisan gerrymandering, right? It is. Kennedy's position on the court and his uh, apparent willingness to potentially deal with this issue, even if he never actually did, always served as a little bit of a, um, a warning to legislators who might want to um, uh, kind of gerrymandered in the most extreme fashion. He's gone. It's clear now the Supreme Court is not going to be reviewing any of these cases. So uh, it's kind of uh, open season. And now with the 2020 census coming up, uh, state legislatures will, uh, after 2020, uh, be redrawing uh, their, their maps, and so we should see a lot of partisan gerrymandering. Which brings us to the census case, yes. which is actually uh, sort of tied here to this issue. So, so what was that case about? So the census case is about um, the enumeration clause of the Constitution, which only comes up every 10 years because it has to do with the census. Um, let me read you. Uh, just part of the enumeration clause. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed three-fifths of other persons. Right? Remember that part has been since excised. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years. The idea is that we want an accurate count of all people. 
and in, in the original Constitution, that included those people who were enslaved, so obviously not just um, American citizens. The Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, announced that in the 2020 census, they would be adding a question for the first time in, I believe, 70 years to the, to the main census, uh, asking respondents whether or not they were American citizens. The potential problem with that question is that uh, studies have found that it, it suppresses the response rate for certain groups. If somebody has a family member who is in the United States illegally, the whole household may not respond, and ultimately it results in an undercount for certain districts where there are large numbers of immigrants. That could affect arguably both uh, Republican and Democratic states. You know, Texas is on a border, as is California, but uh, the analysis finds this is would largely advantage Republicans, and Republicans uh, uh, saw that it would advantage them politically. The question was whether or not the Commerce Secretary had the authority to add this question, whether it violated the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, whether it violated the Constitution in terms of equal protection. And the result would be um, if, if districts are undercounted, they will, they will be affected not just in terms of how much representation they get in the Congress, but it also affects the flow of federal money. So there's a representation and a funding uh, problem that comes out of the issue. Now, as I understand it, under the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, something like this can't happen unless the secretary uh, provides some kind of reason as to why this change is going to be made. So what kind of rationale did, did Ross come up with? Ross's rationale was that the Department of Justice needed this information to enforce the Voting Rights Act. But it came out that that this was a pretext, right? I mean, the, I mean this is the, this is what this is why the whole case kind of imploded for for the the government this this time. Their decision to not just say that it was that that they were doing this for information to enforce the the, the Voting Rights Act, but to say that was the only reason they were doing it, um, uh, ultimately sank them with the Chief Justice. So, in Roberts' decision, he says that. The Commerce Secretary has the authority to add this question to the census. That it is not unconstitutional to have this question on the census. And that it doesn't violate the Administrative Procedures Act to put this question onto the census. But, and this is where we run into kind of an interesting wrinkle with regard to John Roberts and his position on the court. He required that they come up with a different reason for the question because he determined and the lower court determined that the uh, the Voting Rights Act reason was pretext which is lawyer speak for a lie and 
And there was evidence in the lower courts. That evidence that was the in case. the lower courts, and it was a, the, the, a the, clearly what the administration was trying to do is they were trying to bias the census in favor of the Republicans. And it was, it was a, a policy that Ross came in wanting to um, right. wanting to enforce. So it's it, the the irony is if they had been um, maybe more truthful, they would have gotten away with it. But they. Um, they tried to come up with a reason that sounded good, and it and it and it ultimately failed. And so, and Roberts, in on that part of the case, he voted with the liberals. So. He voted with the liberals to send it right. back, and and there was so little time before the census actually had to get underway that the Trump administration did not come back with another rationale. And what's going to end up happening is that that question is not going to be on the 2020 census. Given these two cases, would you argue that Roberts has become sort of the swing justice now? Or, I mean, wh why, why did he side with the liberals on the census case? I know we can't get inside of his mind, but uh, can we uh, speculate as to uh, exactly how he's deciding some of these cases? So I think both of these cases are are good evidence for John Roberts, the institutionalist, the protector of the court. Roberts is not a, a liberal. I don't think he's a centrist. He's a solid conservative. His decisions, though, especially those decisions that most upset conservatives, tend to be decisions where he tries to find a middle ground that kind of protects the court from the larger political fight. Uh, if you think about the Obamacare case where he sided with the liberals, that's kind of his most notorious example. He, he still wanted to give a kind of rather limited reading of the Commerce Clause and other kind of conservative um, approaches, but uh, he also recognized that a uh, Republican court overturning a policy enacted by a Democratic president with a large Democratic majority in the Congress uh, would look terrible for the court. And in this case, or in these two cases this term, the w with the partisan gerrymandering, I think Roberts genuinely wanted to stay out of the political fray, even though not entering essentially uh, takes a side, right? But he's, he stays out. He doesn't want to involve the, the court in, in the kind of partisan political bickering that is, that is so pervasive now. With regard to the census case, Roberts, I don't think he could stomach the court being lied to by the administration. That's how the opinion read. He did not want to uh, just do what the administration said in the face of a pile of evidence that, that showed that they were, they were um, not being straight with the court. So these are two cases where the liberals and conservatives sharply divided and sort of ideologically. Uh, but there were a lot of other cases this last term where those ideological divisions weren't so apparent. I uh, want to talk about a couple of those cases where the partisan and ideological boundaries sort of broke down and, and we had liberals and conservatives voting together. On, on either side. Uh, what were a couple of cases that you thought were particularly significant? So one case that seemed interesting as the, as the term was underway was this um, um, uh, Gamble versus United States separate sovereigns case and the question of whether someone could be tried 
uh, in federal court for an offense that they had already been tried in state court. So basically, if you if you were charged in state court on drug charges, could you then be tried in federal court on under federal law? And historically, the answer would be yes. There's they're kind of separate sovereigns. If you get tried in state court, you're still criminally liable in federal court. The case was also interesting in the kind of current political moment because there was this question of whether uh, Trump was going to pardon uh, some of his associates who had gotten into trouble, including Paul Manafort. If Paul Manafort were convicted in federal court and the president could pardon him, and if he were pardoned at the federal level and there were no separate sovereign doctrine, that would mean that the state could the state of New York or Florida or wherever else he had committed um, his various crimes could not try him. Those were the stakes, though it didn't end up being as blockbuster as it seemed it might be in the fall. But but, <laughs> but what seemed like kind of a very boring case about separate sovereignties that sounds very law schoolish, right? Yes. Uh, only a law professor would get excited about that. Uh, in the current moment, it has these political implications because uh, if if there are not separate sovereigns, then uh, those people that Trump might pardon would be off the hook at the state level. Right. Beyond the the kind of drama surrounding the the Trump White House, this has a this has a pretty far-reaching implication, right? These these separate sovereigns, and there because there are a lot of people who um, the, the federal the federal code has gotten so much larger that there's there are a lot of people who, when they commit crimes, are uh, potentially in federal and state court, and the the sentences can be much harsher uh, in federal court, and it can be a pretty oppressive situation. So let's drill down to the details of this case. What, how did this case arise? Who was involved, et cetera? This case was about a young man named Terrence Gamble who was uh, convicted of possession of a firearm uh, by a felon. He argued that he could not be uh, tried in both state and federal court for the same offense. The question is just simply whether you could be tried on the same crime in different in different jurisdictions Um, because the Constitution contains a double jeopardy clause right that says you can't be tried for the same crime twice so I think this is a a kind of reasonable uh, claim that you should not be able to be charged for um, the same crime in state and federal court what ends up happening after what looked like uh, a rather even split during during oral arguments. It ends up coming out seven to two in favor of retaining the um, the separate sovereigns doctrine and uh, allowing for uh, convictions in both state and federal court for the same crime. The interesting part from our perspective is that the two dissenters are Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch. So one conservative and one liberal. Yes, dissenting. And one, and this is this is one of the cases that this is one of the situations I brought up earlier, where Neil Gorsuch shows his libertarian side, his Scalia inclination toward defensive of criminals in light of the kind of potentially oppressive nature of the criminal justice system. 
So how do you account for the majority, though, in this case? What, what do you think was going on there that so many, that both conservatives and liberals agreed to keep the, the dual sovereignty doctrine? It felt like there just wasn't the wherewithal to, to, to come in and overturn existing precedent. It seemed like the majority was not driven one way or the other, so they let the, the law sit as it was. And this is also a case where Kavanaugh sides with the chief and feels like he's maybe not rocking the boat um, early on. Uh, there actually were two other cases uh, this last term that had seven to two decisions. The Flowers versus Mississippi, having to do with race discrimination, and then the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association about a cross. Yes. Right? So, so what happened in those cases? Well, Flowers versus Mississippi is is a really interesting case. Since we're on a podcast, I guess I'll plug another podcast, but there's one called In the Dark that traces the the, the history of, of the Curtis Flowers case. This is a case where there's a black man in Mississippi uh, in the 1990s who's convicted of murdering four people, three of which are white, in a furniture store in Mississippi. He's tried in two different trials and convicted. Both are overturned in Mississippi for prosecutorial misconduct. He's tried a third time. In that trial, it's overturned for a so-called Batson violation. Batson versus Kentucky is a Supreme Court case that makes it unconstitutional to uh, strike jurors based on their race. At the beginning of any trial, lawyers have a set number of what's called preemptory challenges. So you can strike jurors for a variety of reasons. The idea is that you could um, that you could strike someone simply because you don't like the way they're looking at the defendant or the way they're looking at the prosecutor. It's a, it's a kind of old rule that goes back to England before the revolution. The question is, can you use those kind of generic reasons to strike someone because they're black or because they're white? And the answer is no, according to the Supreme Court. What happens in Flowers versus Mississippi, I recounted the first three trials. There were ultimately six trials uh, of Curtis Flowers. He's convicted. He's on death row in Mississippi. The same prosecutor prosecuted all six trials. And in every trial, the prosecutor struck almost all black jurors. It ends up being Brett Kavanaugh, who writes the majority opinion, and is joined by all justices except for Thomas and Gorsuch, who are in dissent. Kavanaugh notes that at Flowers' sixth trial, the prosecutor struck five of six prospective black jurors, and he questioned black jurors at an average of, I believe, 29 minutes, and white jurors at an average of one minute. So it was a very obvious pattern over the course of six trials of um, attempting to exclude African Americans from serving on the jury. You know, Mississippi, of course, has a, a, a rather uh, disturbing history connected to this issue. And uh, I think this case was a pretty easy case for, uh, for the majority. It's an interesting dissent. Um, Clarence Thomas really stakes himself out as the most conservative member of the court in this dissent. I've not read anything like it before. He essentially argues that the prosecutor gave uh, race-neutral reasons that, that the court should simply accept. So 
in Thomas's reading, it's almost as if Batson would require the prosecutor to announce racist reasons in court in order for them to be violating the the standard. Gorsuch joins him on 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 this part of the opinion, but then he goes on to basically advocate overturning Batson. And Gorsuch exits left on 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 that portion of the dissent. He's not he doesn't join that. Yeah. But um, it was a sight to behold. So you've got th- these cases and there were a few others where th- they weren't as uh, as overwhelming as seven to two or anything, but where you had these splits. I mean, nowadays we we tend pundits anyway, and, and as a podcast host, I guess that makes me a pundit. Pundits tend to interpret everything the court does in sort of partisan and ideological terms. That uh, when the justices uh, hear cases, they're going to come down on whichever side uh, fits their ideological predilection or their partisan bias. And I think a lot of Americans have come to view that, the court that way, particularly given the, the, the partisan wrangling over the appointment of Supreme Court justices and the fact that it seems that partisan and ideological considerations seem to have played a big role in recent years in appointments to the court, which of course wasn't the case, say, prior to the 1970s or 80s, but now it's assumed. Uh, So is there any reason to think that uh, our tendency to uh, interpret what the court does in ideological and partisan terms might be wrong? that in fact the court isn't uh, this, this uh, partisan creature that is often portrayed? I don't think it's simply a partisan creature, but I do think that the Supreme Court is a political creature. And I think that uh, the, the members of the Supreme Court have political opinions, and their decisions often reflect those political opinions. I, I don't think the Supreme Court can be s- separated from the, the kind of current partisan issues in, in, in America. I think that all members of the court would like for it to be separate, but I, I just don't think it's, that's possible. So how do we count for these decisions where there are majorities on one side or the other? Uh, so they're just not interpreting these issues in partisan terms, or is something else coming into play? Well, some issues don't have just a clear partisan divide, right? I mean, and, and so... Like the dual sovereignty issue. Like right. the dual sovereignty issue. I mean, you know, in, in some ways, liberal and, and, and kind of far left and far right meet at some point when you're talking about um, the, the powers of the police, for instance, right? Strong liberals are suspicious of police. You know, very conservative uh, jurists are also suspicious of, of police power. The American Humanist case that you brought up earlier, the uh, which is a an establishment clause case, that ends up you end up two liberals on the on the majority with conservatives about uh, whether or not this forty foot cross could could stand in Bladensburg, Maryland. So it stood since the nineteen twenties or something. Yeah, right? it was put, it was it was put in place to honor uh, uh, veterans of World War One. So right. it's been there for a very long time, over a hundred years, and. I guess the answer on that one is the liberal position might be we're, we're going to move more toward toward kind of secular 
uh, approach and, and that we should remove these kinds of symbols from public land and, and the government should not be maintaining them, that kind of thing. But the decision itself actually ends up being quite narrow, right? So it's about the, the decision hinges on the fact that it's, that it's a very old memorial. It doesn't kind of cut back on the uh, Establishment Clause jurisprudence uh, much at all. So it, in that case, liberals are able to join with conservatives because the decision itself does, it, it isn't kind of broad in scope. So we'll see. I don't know what's going to ultimately happen, but I, I think that justices on the Supreme Court often look for opportunities to agree with those on the other side on legal questions, in part so that the court can look less ideological. I mean, uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were on the opposite side of a bunch of cases this term. And so that, you know, that alone gives a, it should give some comfort to people. But I, I think if once we get down to some truly uh, partisan questions, and I, I suspect we, we will next term, um, we have the potential for an abortion case. There have been a lot of new laws passed in, across the country. Um, there's going to be a second, another Second Amendment case. Kennedy was a Kennedy again. The, the way he provided a little bit of a break on the partisan gerrymandering. He, he provided a little bit of a break on Second Amendment. Yeah. And so that's not there anymore. Uh, you know, Heller, uh, in Heller, Scalia uh, finds an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, but he could have potentially gone further. This is an opportunity for the court to offer a more expansive uh, view of the Second Amendment. So we'll see. So one might argue that the the lack of a lot of ideological or partisan rancor this term was a reflection of the kind of cases that came before the court that didn't elicit those kinds of divisions but we might see more of that given the cases coming up this I term. I think that's right and I also think that Brett Kavanaugh came on the court in such a dramatic fashion it was probably in his best interest to lay low this term and so we'll see if he acts in a different way in in coming years. Okay, to, to finish up this conversation, I uh, want to say a little something about the future of the court. So what do you think is going to happen, uh, whether a Republican, or whether Trump is reelected in 2020 or whether a Democrat is reelected? Uh, uh, is the court going to uh, evolve in one particular way or another? What, what do you see happening in the future? Okay, I, th- I think this election is going to be extremely important for the court. And it's not just the presidential election, it's going to be who controls the Senate as well. So if Trump uh, wins re-election, I think we're going to see a major shift in the court for a long time. Because Ginsburg, I don't think, will be on the court for another four years after this. I just, it it doesn't, her health doesn't seem that 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 will be the case. Uh, The, who, you know, Trump will will then be able to uh, probably appoint someone to replace Clarence Thomas and, you know, potentially Breyer. So that would kind of be a, a major shift right, I think. So you'd have, in that case, you'd have, you'd have seven conservatives. Potential. And only two liberals. No, it would be, yes, if Breyer goes to. If yeah. Breyer goes to. Yeah. So Sotomayor and Kagan would be the lonely liberals yes, left. Yes, potentially. Yeah. Uh, I think, but at a minimum, I think you could 
could expect that Ginsburg would be gone and there would be six. And then Roberts would not hold the the position that he holds now where he can act as the protector of the institutional integrity of the court because he will not be the, the fifth vote. He will be the sixth vote. So, but if a Democrat wins, then... If a Democrat wins, the Senate becomes very important at that point. If a Democrat wins, in all likelihood, Ginsburg will retire. And the kind of next, the only conservative justice who, the oldest justice is is Clarence Thomas. And I suspect like Ginsburg, he he will not leave the court if it means that he would be replaced by someone from the other side. So a Demo- Ginsburg would be replaced by a, another liberal if a Democrat wins. So we'd be, be, basically be status quo then for the court right? in terms of. Uh, so, so the Trump victory in 2016 was quite important for the future of the court. And, I think so. Yeah. Any possibility that a Republican Senate would, would try to block a uh, appointment by a Democratic president? Of uh, course. Yeah. Uh, though the incentives to do so, if it's simply replacing Justice Ginsburg, wouldn't be that great for the Republicans, though, right? I mean, they they, they could just assume, well, you know, Repo- liberals are going to be replacing liberals, so that's not going to really affect the court overall. Right. Unlike it's of less, it's it's of much less consequence than replacing Scalia, Scalia right? Uh, though those issues would come to play if if for some reason you know Clarence Thomas had to resign. Yes. Then we might see some Merrick Garland kind of activity if the Republicans control the Senate. The one interesting thing to watch will be if Ginsburg, for some reason, has to step down in the next six months and we get a replay of the Scalia situation. Only this time, I suspect that Mitch McConnell will shepherd through Trump's nomination very quickly. That will injure the legitimacy of the Senate, and it will probably uh, be a body blow to the court as well. Some liberals looking at a court that is probably going to have a conservative majority, uh, no matter what happens electorally for some time to come, have talked about uh, increasing the size of the court. What do you think about those kinds of ideas? That's an interesting question, and it comes about in response to two nominations that have had quite a bit of controversy surrounding them. So this isn't just out of nowhere. Um, I suspect that that will not pass muster with enough Democrats to garner a majority, even if they have the Senate. It's important to point out here that there's no reason why the Congress couldn't expand the size of the court, right? There's nothing in the Constitution about the size of the court, and the court has been different sizes in the past. Uh, There was a time when it had uh, six members, right, initially, and then seven, and then six, five, was, was six, there, six, seven, ten. Was a ten for a seven, while. Seven, nine as of the late 1860s. Right. So it's been nine for well over 100 years now, so that's become sort of like the conventional number. But Most anyway. people probably assume that nine is required by the Constitution, but as I said at the outset, there's very, very little required by the Constitution when it comes to the court. But at this point, it would be highly charged politically if, if, if any party would try to expand the size, as, as happened with FDR yes. and the so-called court packing back in 
1938, which it didn't work out so well. When he had much stronger majorities than than anyone's going to have after 2020. His own party deserted him. On yes, issue. and right. so I, I I suspect that will be. I mean, because the the potential for Republicans taking back control of the Senate and the presidency in four years is always there. And so, what happens if the Democrats add two seats, and then the next time the Republicans add four seats, and then the next time the Democrats add eight seats, you know, it it could get to the point of absurdity. Well, Paul, thanks very much for a very interesting discussion of the Supreme Court. I think that enlightened me and a lot of our listeners as to what's going on uh, with the court. We'll bring you back later this year uh, when some of those contentious decisions come up to talk about this next term and what's going to be happening on the court. Uh, so, So thanks again for being with us today. Thank you. For those of you who enjoyed Professor Ruth Benardzi's comments on the Israeli elections last spring, stay tuned because uh, we're going to bring Ruth back at the end of this month to talk about the Israeli elections scheduled for September 17th, where Benjamin Netanyahu is again uh, facing the possibility of being replaced as Israeli prime minister. And it will be interesting to see what Ruth has to say about this sort of second Israeli election within a very short period of time. Thanks again to the Beyond the News Feeds production assistant, Reagan Wind, Providence College Class of 2020, for taking care of the production and technical side of this podcast. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, and his staff for their support of our podcast. And most of all, many thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed wherever they get their podcasts.